right, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7. One of my favorite movies when I was young was Fiddler on the Roof, um, because I was a violin player, and I, I liked watching it with the connection of the Jewish people and some of the history. And the opening monologue of the, the book, the whole premise of the fiddler on the roof, is this idea of these Jewish people who are spread out all over Europe. And how, how are they able to continue to remain as a Jewish entity and uh, to, to balance this tipping point of being both oppressed and not part of a country, but, um, but also being uniquely who, who they are and trying to fork out a living, especially in communist Europe uh, during the early 1900s. And um, the answer to that, and he basically says it, it says, how, do we, how are we able to keep our balance? The answer to that is one word, and it goes into a song. And it's tradition, right? And he says there's, there's tradition for how we sleep and how we eat and the clothes that we wear and, and uh, uh, how we work and the steps we make and the holiday and the feast. And he said, and why do we, why do, we do this? And he said, why, why do we have these traditions? Why do we wear these clothes? Why do we do this? And he goes, I don't know. We just do. It's just tradition. You see, any religion has tradition. The word tradition basically comes from the Latin word that, basic, that means to pass along or to hand someone something to someone else. You can hand over a good thing from one generation to the next, just like you can hand over a bad thing from one generation to the next. We talked last week about uh, memorials and relics and things that we hold on to that have been tradition that we've passed on. Uh, even Baptists have certain traditions that we pass on and habits and practices. Our worship is surrounded oftentimes with, with things that have been passed on from one generation to the next, the part of our worship. It is, worship itself does involve some kind of action. We talked Sunday about giving of an offering. We talk about singing and uh, we talk about prayer. We talk about reading. All of those things must be done. They are actions that must be done and uh, they are a part. And traditions often creep in to some of those areas. Have you ever wondered if we're doing it the right way? You ever thought about that? Um, well, we find this often in the life of Israel. Their worship became something that they just did and they had no idea why they were doing what they were doing and if they were even doing it in the right way in the first place. So Zechariah is going to be dealing with in the next section of his book of tradition and worship, the topic of worship and tradition. And so if you look down in Zechariah chapter 7, let me... Let me read the chapter for you and then we'll, we'll come back to some introductory comments. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came into Zechariah in the month, uh, in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chezlev, 
When they had sent unto the house of God, Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to pray before the Lord and to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, to the prophets saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, to the priest, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all fast unto me, even to me? And when you did eat and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should you not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain? And the, Lord of, of, and the word of the Lord came into Zechariah saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, Execute truth, judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it is come to pass that as he cried, and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. The book of Zechariah is divided into three sections. When we gave the introduction to the book, we, we talked about that. The first six chapters are giving eight visions. There's an introduction, and then there's a concluding object lesson at the end of chapter six. But there's eight visions that are given by Zechariah in the first bulk of this book. The next division is chapter seven and eight. Chapter seven and eight are together a message or a series of sermons that Zechariah preaches. The last section is chapters 9 through 14. They are the burden of Zechariah. Two times in those two chapters, Zechariah is going to say, this is a burden that God has given me, and here it is, and he's going to prophesy. Much of that section, the last portion of Zechariah, is prophecy concerning the future, a burden that Zechariah is carrying that he must deliver, and it is about the future for Israel. When we come to the second division of the book, these two chapters, 7 and 8, we have a clear date to them as mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto me in the fourth day of the ninth month. That specifically is given us. So um, we had previously a date given in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. So we have in the second year of Darius, now we have in the fourth year of Darius. If you notice between chapter 6 and chapter 7, two years have gone by. Two years have gone by when the last time that Zechariah took that crown 
of silver and gold and put it on Joshua's head, then took it off. He made a prophecy. He said some words. Then he told him to take it and put it in the window or put it in the temple. And there it was going to be a sign. It was going to be a memorial for them to remember that the king is coming. And then all of a sudden for two years, nothing. God waited two years. What was Zechariah doing for those two years in between these two chapters? Um, what was God doing during those two years? He was not speaking. So here you have eight visions, boom, on Zechariah all in one night. And he's like, you know, a fire hydrant, just, you know, trying to drink it all down and then write it all down. And then he's told to go and take an offering and then go and, and make this crown and put it on his head and just, I mean, go out with a big bang and take this and put it up in the temple. And what a great object lesson. The king is coming. And then for two years, God doesn't speak to him. What's going on during the two years? Well, in Ezra, Ezra records that they're continuing to build the temple. So they continue to, to uh, lay the foundation, put the stones up. Some have indicated this is about halfway between the time of the building of the temple. So the outer walls are already built. Some of the inner portions are already started to be working. It seems like even from this message here that there's already priests on the inside of the temple that are already performing some ceremonies and they, they can be approached at the temple itself. And so, during this time frame, the building project has continued to go forward. What was Zechariah doing? Well, we don't know, but I can assume that what Zechariah was doing is probably what I'm, I've been doing on a regular basis, week in and week out. Just preparing and preaching and proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Much of what the prophets did in their lifetime was just repeating what God had already said. All of my ministry as a pastor in the New Testament is just repeating what God has already said. There's nothing new under the sun. Very rarely, in fact, portions of what uh, the prophets would give, very rarely are they foretelling of the future, foretelling of the future. Most of the time, the job of the prophet every day on the time was just to remind the king or remind the people what God had already said. And interesting in this sermon, God will remind them what he had already said anyway. So the ninth month uh, in the Jewish calendar see, uh, falls around the time of November and December. One commentator actually dated the, this to December 7th, 518 B.C. He's pretty accurate there, I guess, in, in his estimation. But So we are looking at December in 518. Zechariah wants us to understand that he doesn't make this up. This comes from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord that came to Zechariah on a specific day, specific month, in a specific year. God's word came to him. This reminds me of what Peter said. Peter said, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Men were not just pulling the prophecy of God out of their head whenever they wanted to. God would speak, the prophets would say and write. And then God wouldn't speak. And then God would speak, they would say and write. They were the mouthpiece of God. And the only time that they had any kind of revelation to say was only when God would speak. And so Zechariah wants this to point us back that God is the one who gives us this word. God is the one that shows the initiative. God is the one that gives his word. And so, as a means of the word of the Lord that comes to Zechariah, it comes about because there's being a question that has been brought up. Look at verse 2 and 3. 
when they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to pray before the Lord to speak unto the priest. So there, there is a question. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah on the occasion of a question that is being asked in verse 2 and 3. Why does God's word come? It comes because they are seeking an answer to a question that they have. God is not obligated to answer all of our questions. In fact, many of the questions that we have and many of the questions that the Jewish people had, God did not necessarily answer. God didn't answer all of Job's questions. God's not obligated to answer every question that you have. However, God does respond. Now, we ask the question of who, who is presenting the question in these verses. The two names that are given. Just notice as just a way to go through them. Both of these names are Babylonian names. Um, the one name is very similar to the name that Daniel was given, Belteshazzar. Sherezar is a very similar name in connection. It is, a, it is connected to a Babylonian god. So this is a Jewish man who was born in captivity, much like Daniel was, who his name was changed. He comes back to the promised land under captivity, and he's living in the holy land, but he's still going by his Babylonian name. And it's recorded, and they have a question that is brought to them. And they are pleading before the Lord. Did you see that in verse 2? At the end of verse 2, they're men to pray before the Lord. The word pray here is, is the literal word of the Hebrew means to be weak or to be humble or even can mean sick. To be sick, to be bowed low. Here in the context, it means to pray or to entreat. Strong says this word means to find favor from someone. Feinberg and MacArthur states that this word means to stroke the face. To stroke the face of an important one. It's like, ooh, that's kind of weird. Well, the idea is the fact that someone who is poor, who is sick, who comes in and is pleading with someone who is in power, and they're so begging that one in power that they reach up to their face and they stroke their face and they, please listen to me. I'm reminded of my little girl sometimes when they come and get into my lap and they, they get my face and put their little hands on my face and they rub my face and say, Daddy, please, please, can I have some ice cream? Like last night, please, can I have a piece of cake? Did you eat all your food? Please, please. You know, that's, just, that's the way little children are. The same word that is used here has this idea that these men have come to the temple, they've come to the Lord, and they're pleading with God. They're entreating the Lord. They're asking God's favor to come down because they've got a question. And it's a question that's serious to them. What is the question? Look in verse 3. They came to speak unto the priests, which in the house of the Lord of hosts, to the prophets, saying, here's the question, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Question is in regards to worship. One translation says this, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done? The Hebrew word for separate, or the word uh, that is in our English is separate, means to fast. It means to consecrate or to vote oneself. It actually has the connection, it's the root word for the word Nazarite. A Nazarite vow was someone who decided, who, who, had been, who had come in together to a vow that they would make, and it involved food that they would stay away from, drink, 
that they would stay away from and other things that they were to dedicate themselves that they would not do. They were set aside as someone separate. So obviously on the fifth month, these men were, they weren't entering into a Nazarite vow, but they were consecrating and separating themselves and fasting and mourning over something. Um, look at verse 5. He says here in verse 5, speaking to all the people of the land to the, the priests saying, when you fast and mourn in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, um, fifth and seventh month, look at chapter 8 verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month. All right, so he's answering the question. There, there are four fasts that are taking place uh, in this. Four times a year they were fasting. And each of these fasts had to do with the destruction of the temple in 586. And I did the, the, the research and the study on it. You can just take it out of the word. Jeremiah 52 and verse 12 records that the destruction of the temple occurred in the fifth month. So during the captivity, the Jews kept a fast on that date for 70 years, mourning the destruction of the temple. In Jeremiah 41, verse 1 and 2, records that there was an assassination of the governor named Gildaliah happened in the seventh month. This was an important event that struck the downfall of Jerusalem. A man named Ishmael, Jeremiah records this in Jeremiah 41, named Ishmael and ten men killed him during a feast. And by the time Zechariah was living, they were keeping that assassination date as a fast in the seventh month. Every year for 70 years. Jeremiah 39 and verse 2. Jeremiah records that in the fourth month uh, of the Jewish people, the city walls of Jerusalem were broken down and Jerusalem fell. By this time, the Jews were keeping a, fee, a fast every year in the fourth month to, to mourn and weep the, the crumbling of the walls of Jerusalem. It doesn't end there. Jeremiah 39 and verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon laid siege on the city of Jerusalem starting in the 10th month. So for 70 years in the 10th month, on the date of, of Nebuchadnezzar's besiege of Jerusalem, they were also observing a fast. This would be much like what we would do on December 7th every year. We don't do a fast necessarily, but it is a time of memorial December 7th to remember Pearl Harbor Day, 1941. 9-11 comes around every year and we celebrate 9-11 in our schools and with our kids and a lot of times we don't celebrate it, we, we mourn it, we use it as a time of mourning and, and remembering across the nation. We have a lot of um, national memorials and, and dates that we remember. There's a holiday coming up, I believe, next week on Monday that is that people memorial, whether it's this, you know, different, different times and people that can remember these terrible events. Well, this is what was happening in Zechariah's day. There were these Jews who were continuing to keep these fasts year after year, four of them. And notice he says, should we do this that we have done these so many years, as he says at the end of verse 3? In other words, the indication in, in, the, in the phrasing is, do we have to keep these fast every year? All right. 
We've done it year after year after. There's some, there's some weariness in his voice about these constant fasts that they're keeping four times a year. Fasting had become a wearisome task, a heavy burden on them. They had been in this tradition for 70 years. And they were wondering, do we have to keep doing this? Were these fasts commanded by God? The answer is no. God only commanded one yearly fast to continue to go in the Jewish calendar. And that was every year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus records for that. Only one fast. Now that doesn't mean there were times of fasting. There were times that God required his people to fast. But I'm talking about a yearly holiday, a yearly time on a regular basis that was to be perpetual, that they were to practice. It was the Day of Atonement. They were to fast on that day. So how in the world did we get to Jesus' time where they were fasting two times a week? And the Pharisees were making people fast on a regular basis, two times a week, when God's word only required every Jewish person to fast one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, the other question that I asked myself was, was it wrong for them to fast? I mean, was it wrong for them to think about and to commemorate and to to set these traditions in their 70-year captivity to remember these dates that were so important because it marks the destruction of their city and their temple and their home and their land? Was it wrong? Well, the answer is no. But what God is going to do, they ask this question, and Zechariah spends two chapters. God spends two chapters answering, or if you want to say it, not answering the question. Why do we do what we do? How does tradition get into our practice? Is tradition wrong? When should we stop doing a tradition? How important is tradition? What is commanded by God that we are to do and what is tradition and is it wrong? There are some people who feel that if it, there's not a thus saith the Lord Bible verse for something, then we shouldn't be doing it. However, there are traditional patterns that, can, that were established for good reason. This, these fasts were not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But, but um, did they meet what what they should have been meeting and was it, was it right and done in the right way. Warren Rearsby uh, says this, it is easier to have a religion of habit than it is to have a religion of heart. That's what God is going to respond. He doesn't come right out, at least right, not the first chapter. I think he probably does in chapter 8. He comes out and gives him a straight-up answer. But it takes at least a chapter and a half to get to that answer. God doesn't answer their question right away. The question is simple. Do we continue to keep these fasts? But the answer that God gets at says, you're asking the wrong question. God speaks. Look at verse 4. Then came the word of the Lord. Take your eyes and look down at verse 8. And the word of the Lord Came. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And again, the word 
of the Lord of hosts came to me saying. Look at chapter 8 and verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me saying. Now look back at chapter 7 and verse 7. Should you not hear the words which the Lord hath cried? Look at verse 9. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 12. Yea, they made their hearts as the adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent. Look at verse 13. Uh, Therefore it is come by pass that he cried, and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear. Saith the Lord of hosts. Look at chapter 8 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 6 at the end of verse 6. Saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse uh, 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse um, 14. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at the end of verse 14. Saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 17. Uh, At the end of verse 17. Saith the Lord. Look at verse 19. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 20. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Is there any question of who is speaking? Does God have an answer to their question? Does it seem like for two years God has been chomping at the bits to say something? Is God really silent to our questions? When you think in your life that God is not listening to your prayers and that you can't hear Him and that it seems like He's silent, Open your Bible and read one page. I'm not saying that in every page, every one of your questions is answered. But I am saying that if you have questions somewhere in God's word, he has an answer for you. Just read it. And sometimes you'll find in chapters like this, thus saith the Lord, over and over and over again. In fact, God responds with three questions of his own. Don't you like when somebody, you ask a question and then they turn around and ask you back a question? God seems to do that a lot. He asks three questions right back to back in verse 5. Speak it on the people of the land uh, oh, that, that is fast and say... When you fasted and mourned in the seventh and fifth month, even though 70 years, did you at all fast unto me? Question one. Question two, verse six. And when you did eat and when you did drink, did you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? That's question two. Question three. Should you not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited in its prosperity? And notice there's a question at the end of the sentence. Three questions back to back the way God answers. The response of the Lord. Here's the response of the Lord. When you were doing your fast all of those years, why were you doing it? Who were you doing it for? Was it for me? 
When you ate or when you didn't eat, in other words, when you fasted and when you had a feast, when you met for Thanksgiving, when you met for a Christmas dinner, when you met for a wonderful dinner and the table was open and you were eating and drinking, why did you do that? Did you do that for yourself? Are these not the words previously spoken by God through the prophets when your people lived in Jerusalem and they had plenty? In other words, God is saying, I've already answered that question for you. You see, these questions are designed to cause these men to think. The main issue of this section is not what you are doing, but why are you doing what you are doing? Do you do it for yourself or are you doing it for God? Why fast at all? You see, God is dealing with hypocrisy here. You can fast all day long. But if you don't do it for the right reason in the right heart, then God doesn't care how many times you fast. In a week, in a year, it doesn't matter. You see, because any religion that is practiced over and over and over again, whether it's tradition or even commanded by God, but it is not done with the right heart, God says, I don't want it. And he reminds them that this is not something that is new to you because I've told you this before. What did Samuel say to Saul? Is it not better to obey than to sacrifice? What did God say from the previous prophets when they brought their sacrifices to the Lord but they went right back out and did what they wanted to? God says, I don't hear, I don't see your vain sacrifices because you bring them to me in the temple with a wrong heart. So even when you do it the right way, when you're not doing it for the right reason with the right heart, I'm not going to accept that either. God is dealing with hypocrisy. This gets to the heart of worship. Where is your heart? God is informing them that the whole issue with them these last many years has been doing it. They've been doing it all for the wrong reasons. It was all a show. And this show of religion became tiresome and wearisome to them and they couldn't wait until it was over. Do we have to keep doing this that we've done it so many years in a row? Listen, When your religion has gotten to the point where you are bored and tired and weary of it, then it means your heart is in the wrong place. Now, that doesn't mean that religion itself that you are practicing is the great thing because you can get a nice thrill from worshiping some idol somewhere. It's got to be to the right God. But God is dealing here. They've been praying and they've been fasting to the right God. But they've been doing it in the wrong heart. And God is getting to, you weren't doing this for me. You were doing this for yourself. And whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do. Or you don't eat and you don't drink and you don't sleep. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God is getting at the heart of these Jewish people because they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They just know they're celebrating something bad or mourning something bad in the past. What's the issue? Can we stop this tradition already? God says, I never told you to start it. But while you were doing it, it could have been a good thing if your heart was in the right place. The whole issue is whether you do it or you don't do it, where's your heart? Why do you do what you do? 
Then he reminds them that the word of the Lord that came to them previously by the former prophets. Read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah. Read Joel. Read Amos. Read Micah. And just to name a few. These words long before God had given them the answer to their questions. Isaiah 58 verse 3 through 8. I wish I had time to read it, but our time is already out. But you can read that a little later on. Because in that question, Isaiah says, why do you fast? In that whole section, he asked them, why are you doing what you are doing? And Isaiah addresses the hardness of the heart of the Jewish people. Verses 8 through 14, this last portion of the chapter, God reminds them how they got to where they are. Why were they fasting in the first place? He reminds them that their fathers just went through the motions, but they failed to listen to the words of God. This is the reason they were judged. They would go fast and pray, worship at the temple, cry the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, and walk right out of the temple and break every one of God's laws. God says, that's not the type of religion that I want from you. You're two-faced. You come into the temple, you come into the church, if you want to put it, use it in a modern term, and you, and you practice your thing, you put on your face, you put on your thing, and then you walk back out and you do exactly what you want to do. Why were you doing anything? You were doing it for yourself, maybe out of guilt. You were doing for it because you felt bad. You wanted to get out of your current situation, so that's why you do what you do. So God gives them some commands and said, this is what I've always required of you. Look at verse 9. Execute true judgment. Show mercy. Show compassion. Don't oppress the widows and the fatherless and the strangers and the poor. And don't let any evil imagination be in your heart towards your brother. You can fast all day long. You can sing all day long. You can come to church all day long. You can make all your sacrifices all day long. But if you go right back out and you're unkind with your words, you're unright uh, you're, you're, you're in your decisions, you're, you're, uh, the way you treat other people and unfairly, you oppress the poor and the needy because you're using your status and your money to overpower them. This is basically the exact same thing that Jesus deals with with the Pharisees. Let me read two verses to you, and then we'll close. Micah 6, 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee. You know the answer to the question? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Genuine Christianity, genuine worship to God. James answers the same question. He asks the same thing in James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Visit the fatherless, the widows in their affliction, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Be genuine. Be real. Serve God. That's what true godliness and true religion is supposed to do. Their relationship with God could not be right as long as they were treating others unfairly and unkindly. Their religion was fake. And because of that, they refused to obey. He says in verse 11, in verse 12, they made their hearts like a stone. This is a diamond stone, the hardest stone. You know what sclerosis is? MS. It's a terrible disease that eats away at the nervous system. And many people who have 
deteriorating um, uh, problems with this physical disease. It's the hardening of vessels or nerves or signals or muscles or a lot of different types of things when it becomes hard and it eats away. Jesus said this of the most religious people of his day. Your hearts are hard. Your ears are stopped. And it was because of this that God sent his wrath like a whirlwind or a tornado or a windstorm. Yesterday we had a lot of chaos going on. I came home from... Um, from uh, uh, work yesterday, and because of the windstorm, all of the trash cans, yesterday was trash day, were all over the road in people's front yards and everything, just because the wind and the way it was blowing. You know, God takes seriously those who claim to be His who are just going through the motions, but it's not really the heart. And he holds out a special judgment for those type of people who are fake and phony. And he did for Israel. And so he answers that in this chapter with a serious, you know, kind of hitting right at the heart. And then chapter 8 is going to continue a little bit more further on this. Those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. Father, I pray that you would help us as we see this passage in Ones to come, uh, we would ask ourselves why we do what we do. Uh, what is in our heart? Are we doing it for the right reason? And uh, Lord, you are very concerned with those who call you um, Father and those who are, are um, believers. And uh, if we're fake or we're phony, and it's so easy to get into patterns of traditions and things that may may have had a pretty good reason to start, may have even a good reason to keep going. But because we're not doing it in the right way, remembering the one we're doing it for, it's, it, it, it never reaches your ears because of the hardness of us. It has a selfish motive, uh, uh, trying to appease some guilt or, or fulfill some duty so that we feel better about ourselves. It all points back to, to self and not doing it in the, in the right heart to you. Bless us as we go tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you.